Am I on there? There. I think that um, so far today's worship service has been a great example of what honors and pleases God whenever those he's mercifully rescued from his wrath gather together, assemble together to worship him. This is what we're to be doing as his people. We've sung songs about him. We've prayed prayers to him. We've observed one of his ordinances, communion. We've served others with the gifts that he's given us to serve. I trust that we've given back to him a portion of the money he's given us to support his work. And now we're going to listen to him speak to us through the preaching of his word. And each of these simple yet sacred activities that we've been participating in uh, this morning play an important part in the corporate worship gathering of God's people. Another activity that I didn't mention last week and that we're not necessarily going to talk about in this series, Why We Come to Church, uh, but I think could be included in a list of activities involved in corporate worship is sharing personal testimonies of God's saving grace. How how many of you enjoy hearing testimonies of God's saving grace? That's a question I think we should be asking one another all the time, especially when you meet someone uh, for the first time uh, within the walls of the church, um, or you find out someone's a a, a Christian, you you should ask them, well, tell me how you came to know Christ. How did God save you? I want to hear how he did it, because every story is unique, is it not? Um, and yet God is the one who gets all the glory, all the praise, and on the, all the honor. Well, this morning we have the privilege of hearing the testimony of how God saved one of our sisters, how God was merciful to her, uh, to cause her to come to know Christ. And the reason why we want to hear this testimony is so that we can give glory to God for the great things that he has done. Most of you know Emma Hurley. Where are you, Emma? There you are. Come on up here, sweetheart. Um, uh, Emma is the adopted daughter of Shannon and Danielle Hurley, the missionaries that we support who faithfully, sacrificially serve in Uganda. Emma is a student at the Master's College right now, and she's going to be leaving next Sunday to start her senior year. I can't believe it. It's gone so fast. Um, And it's a blessing for us to have... Emma here at Lakeside during the summers, uh, where she lives here with her uh, grandma and grandpa, Adele and Vicki Seahusen. And so uh, Emma recently had an opportunity to share her testimony at a home for, for foster kids in Conroe, and she wanted to do it in a creative way that, that would hold their attention. And uh, you may be aware of this, there's a new genre of worship that's becoming very popular in the church today. It's called spoken word. You may have heard of it. Um, And it's basically just communicating the truth of God's word in artistic, poetic form. And it's really beautiful. It's really powerful. And so Emma wants to share her testimony this morning in this um, worship genre called spoken word. Hi. My story, I don't even know where to begin without stealing his glory. Because even before I was born, my life was destined 
to be reborn. See, everything about me used to be a scorn. I was naked, defenseless, and forlorn. Born in a home that was filled with rage, it was nothing but a cage. With a mom and dad that was not each other, I was filled with questions such as, what's the reason for others? The devastating day, my dad died. He even forbade my mother to raise me because of his pride. And as worst as can be, she packed up and left me, so I took matters into my own hands. And I swore to look out only for me, to only trust me. Since no one else cared, oh, but really, I was only scared. And for years, I was abused, bitten, and starved. To be honest, life was hard. Frustrated that I didn't ask for it, but I was placed in it. And so I would hear about God, but would also look where my feet had trod and wondered if he really existed. See, that thief who stole my life had taken my faith too. And it's true that I was sick and twisted. I kept running a race against pain and despair, but losing every time. Cuts, bruises, and scars laying face down in a pile of dirt that reminded me of the life I woke up to each and every morning. Searching for love and care in a world that continually serves a plate of you, a worthless, and a side of no one cares. But was this my destiny? I was tired of running to nothing, to what seemed an endless road to despair. But then I met these Samaritans who were also Americans, took me home with them from day one, treated me like I was their own, clothed, fed, and put a roof over me. I mean, how could they candle me? A year later, they became my family, and they loved me so naturally. This family told me about how everything points to God, even creation. Why can't I see that? See, God breathed in me, and I became a living soul because only he makes one a whole. He formed me with that intent of being infinitely, intimately known so he and I can have an eternal bond using the breath graciously given to me to worship him. But instead, I used that same breath to curse him. The problem is, I had a problem. And my problem was seen like a cancer eating within, driving me and God so far apart, only to find my darkened heart See, the word says, sin brings death, and that the God-given breath, my God-given breath, belongs to him. Eternally separated, the only way to fix me, someone had to die in my place. And this someone had to be perfect, otherwise the payment wouldn't be permanent. 
And since the only person that could meet this criteria was God, God sent himself as Jesus Christ and paid the cost for me. See, his sacrificial death functioned as a payment. Yes, a payment. Because he wrote a check with his life. Thus, his resurrection makes me cheer because that means all is clear. The pierced feet, the pierced hands, the blood-stained Son of Man. Fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. See, the same breath that God breathed in me, God gave up to redeem me. And privileged is an understatement. Favored is truly how I feel that God would choose to love me to the point of dying for me that he would choose to give to me the gifts of faith and trust. That he would choose to give to me full confidence of his forgiveness. That he would choose to guarantee for me full access to perfect unity with him. That he would give me life, true, full, eternal life. Thank you. Emma's got a little preacher in her, doesn't she? Huh? Thank you. So much. I was just visiting with Emma a couple of days ago, and she shared with me the really the main reason why she wanted to 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 share with this with you. Her testimony this morning was just to remind us uh, as a church that she's a fruit of our commitment to missions. I mean, if that doesn't compel you to want to share the gospel, right? and give to missions. It's what we just saw right there, that she's one from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? That we're going to have the joy of celebrating the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain in heaven for all eternity. And, and this is what we mean when we talk about this is a foretaste of heaven. This is just, I mean, that for all eternity? How cool is that going to be? To hear testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of the myriads and millions of people who God has mercifully saved. And Emma said, if the Hurleys hadn't come to Uganda, I wouldn't be a Christian. And we know God is sovereign. And if he's chosen someone to be saved, they're going to be saved. But from a human perspective, that's true, is it not? That we have a responsibility to go and to, to share and to give and to pray. And so thank you, Emma, just for being a great reminder for us uh, of why it's so important that we don't just keep the truth that we love and appreciate within the four walls of this church, but we gather to grow, ultimately to go. And uh, we're going to talk about that hopefully in a few weeks, that that really is the, the process that we need to be thinking about in our minds. We can't just be, the church is never, was never intended to be a cul-de-sac where we just 
show up and we just get truth dumped on us and we just revel in it and then we leave and it makes no difference. But we gather to grow so that we can go and make an impact on the world around us. This is simply a means to a greater end and Emma's a great example of, of that end. And again, our, our response as a church should not to be to, to praise the Hurley family or even uh, to praise Emma or, or even to praise our church, like pat ourselves on the back and aren't we such a great church? No, the, the praise goes to God. He gets all the glory. We need to make much of Him, not Emma or the Hurleys or ourselves. That's what it means to worship. To, to acknowledge that there is no one or nothing more glorious, more beautiful, as we sang as we began this morning, more awesome, more satisfying than God. And as Matt Papa says in his great book, Look and Live, a book if you've not read yet, I would highly, highly encourage you to grab it and read it. Look and Live by Matt Papa. He says our life should be, quote, one unflinching gaze upon the glory of God. Papa is a worship leader at a church in North Carolina. He is passionate about helping people overcome idolatry. He said, we don't have a worship problem. We're all worshipers by nature. The problem is we have bad aim. And we, we direct our worship to other things besides the only one, the only thing that will satisfy us. And, and he's trying to, he says in his book, he, he wants to help people avoid certain sadness. That if you start worshiping something other than Christ, you will be disappointed. And so his book and his ministry is all about pointing people to the all-satisfying, soul-thrilling, sin-destroying glory of Christ. He begins his book with this quote. He says, I am an expert on worship. He says, I'm not being arrogant. It's just true. And so are you. You are an expert on worship too. It's all we do. We cannot not worship. He said, you see something magnificent and then respond in the praise or adoration of that thing. That's worship. You behold or experiencing some glory, whether it's the glory of a slam dunk, the glory of a sunset, the glory of a rock band, or the glory of bluebell buttercrunch ice cream, as I mentioned last week, right? Or the glory of God. And then, quite naturally, you overflow with awe. You sing. You say, wow. You say, it tastes good. And you call others to experience it with you. Try this. See, praise, share. See, praise, share. That is the journey of worship. That is the essence of the human experience. This is all we do. Papa goes on. He says, worship begins with a focus upon some glory that has mesmerized us and culminates with the sharing of the glory that has satisfied us. We are the most alive when we are praising some greatness, and I will add, doing it with friends whom we love. In other words, it's one thing to sit in your living room and your favorite player hits the walk-off home run and you're, you jump out of your couch and you begin to shout and holler, but how much funner is that moment if you're in a room filled with a bunch of your friends and you're all screaming and hollering together? It just kind of takes it to a whole new level. That's what corporate worship is designed to be. 
He says, what is this other than the church? He said, I'm describing the church, that, that you find something that mesmerizes you and you praise this greatness, and, and yet you, and you're most alive when you're doing it, and, and even more so when you're doing it with friends whom you love. He says, this is the church. One day, surrounding the throne of God, comprised of every tribe, tongue, and nation in rapturous celebration and awe of the Lamb that was slain. This is the reason you exist, to explode with admiration for Jesus Christ and bring as many people as you can into the joy of this admiration. You want to read that book now, don't you? That's just like one of hundreds of highlights (laughs) that I have in that book. But take your Bibles and, and turn to Revelation 5. And I believe this is what, this was the reference, this is the passage, Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, that Pap was referencing here about what we will do one day as God's people is surround his throne and we'll be alongside people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in rapturous celebration and awe of the lamb that was slain. He's, he's getting that from Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. This is a vision that John, the Apostle John, had of of heaven. He said, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. It's referring to Jesus Christ, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all the sea and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a stunning picture of what is happening in heaven right now and what we will be participating in someday when we get there. And as we learned last week from the writer of Hebrews, our experience at church every week was intended by God to serve as a foretaste of heaven, where we will stand around his throne together and worship him for all eternity. We should be like Jacob who said, surely the Lord is in this place and this is the gateway to heaven. That was what the church was intended to be, a place, if you will, to peer into heaven, 
to experience a taste of, of heaven. And so a church's worship service should resemble what's going on in heaven right now and what we're going to be a, a part of when we get there. It's a, really, this is a dress rehearsal for heaven. And so when an unbeliever may walk in to our church or any church, they'll sense that God is certainly among us and feel compelled to fall on their face and worship God with us. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. And that's why it's so important to remember that whenever we gather together, we are in the presence of not just any God, we're in the presence of the living God, the living God who wants us to reverently worship and honor Him in such a way that we and others can say, again, surely God is in this place. Well, we left off last week asking the question, okay, if that's true, how do we do that? How, how do we worship God in a worthy manner? That's what worship is. It's, it's describing worship to our God and our creator and our sustainer and our savior and our coming judge. It's, it's, it's praising him. It's honoring him. How do we do that in a manner that pleases him and blesses us? and convicts those that don't know him. See, worship isn't just to affect God, if you will, or impact God, or it doesn't just relate to God, it also relates to us, that worship is to be a blessing to us as well, and it's also to be a conviction to those that don't know Christ. And so what does that look like? Well, I think there are at least six essential activities involved in corporate worship that pleases God, that blesses us, and that convicts those who don't know Him. Um, in other words, there are six things that we, as God's people, must do whenever we gather together to worship Him. We need to sing, we need to pray, we need to observe, we need to serve, we need to give, and we need to listen. Uh, this is why we come to church. We come to church to sing. We come to church to pray. We come to church to observe. I mean, observing by obeying uh, the ordinances. We come to church to serve. We come to church to give. We come to church to listen. And that pretty much sums up what, a corporate, what should be involved in a corporate worship setting like the one we're in right now. And so I want to just walk us through these seven, or excuse me, these six activities. I added a seven today with Emma's testimony, right? But uh, the six activities here, and the first one is singing. And I want to take a little bit more time talking about this, this aspect of the worship service. Um, it, it seems so simple, and how, I mean, do we really need to talk about that? It, it, it just seems like, uh, yeah, it's pretty obvious that we sing together. Okay, what's next? Well, well, there's so much going on when we sing, and, and nothing, nothing we do except for the preaching of God's Word plays a more significant role in corporate worship than the singing, than the music. And in fact, music ministry, the ministry of music, is part of the ministry of the Word. You can't separate the two. There's a direct connection between the ministry of music and the ministry of the Word. Songs and sermons 
are both God-ordained means to teach us the Word of God. God designed us as musical creatures. Have you figured that out yet? You're like, well, I don't know where I was when he was handing out the musical gifts because I can't sing worth, you know, to, to save my life or play an instrument. But, but we're all musical creatures. And he created us to, to be able to sing and to, 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 to use our musical gifts to worship him and praise him. And he designed music for more than just preparing people's hearts to hear the preaching or teaching of the word, but to actually preach and teach the word in the process of preparation. I mean, that's kind of how I kind of grew up thinking, well, songs, you know, songs are good and they're helpful, but they're just kind of, they're just kind of preparatory for the, the, the most important thing, which is the preaching. And I agree with that. There's no more important thing that we do than, than listen to God speak to us through his word. If, if everything had to be, everything else had to be scrapped and we could only pick one of these, I'd say it's got to be listening to God speak to us through his word. But as I've grown in my understanding of, of the ministry of music, I realize that, that, that there's a lot more going on when we sing than just getting our hearts ready to hear the message. In fact, from the very first moment that we sing the first word of the first song, whenever we gather together for worship, guess what? The word begins to accomplish its work within us. And obviously that will only occur if the lyrics of the songs are consistent with what the Bible teaches. And that's why the, the, the number one criteria and really the, the only criteria in choosing the songs that we sing here at Lakeside is simply, are the words biblical? Are the words, uh, are the lyrics an, an, an accurate reflection of what the scripture teaches? It doesn't matter if it's a hymn that was written hundreds of years ago. It doesn't matter if it's a praise song that was written yesterday, uh, if it's something that we found in a hymn book or we heard on the radio. It doesn't matter if it's fast. It doesn't matter if it's slow. It doesn't matter if it's played with an organ or a banjo, right? The point is, are the words biblical? I appreciate what Warren Wearsby said in regards to Christian music today. He says, perhaps this poverty of scripture in our churches is one cause of the abundance of unbiblical songs that we have today. He's acknowledging there's a lot of unbiblical songs that we got no business singing. Uh, he says it's, the, it, it's just as bad for a singer to sing a lie than it is for a preacher to preach a lie. He says the great songs of the faith were for the most part written by believers who knew the doctrines of the word of God. Many so-called Christian songs today are written by people with little or no knowledge of the word of God. And then he closes with this line. He says, it is a dangerous thing to separate the praise of God from the word of God. And you may know this, but if you study church history, every great awakening throughout the history of the church has been accompanied by two things. You know what they are? Great preaching and great music. Think about the Reformation. Luther was the one who introduced hymn singing to the church. And he took a lot of flack for it because he was borrowing in, in, in many ways the, some of the, the, the modern day tunes that were being sung in the pubs and things, and he was putting Christian words, biblical words to them, and yet he was introducing this to his church, that, hey, we need to sing the praise of God. Uh, you know Charles Wesley, um, 
there was a Wesleyan revival, and, uh, and, and in, during that time, Charles Wesley wrote some 6,000 hymns as part of this revival. Some of you may be more familiar with the evangelistic rallies in the early um, 1900s, um, and in, even in more recent years, that God used the preaching of D.L. Moody along with the singing of Iris Sankey as this dynamic duo to lead thousands of Christ. We all know not just about Billy Graham, but of who else? Who's the singer? George Beverly Shea, right? Again, they teamed up to win many people to Christ. The Jesus movement in the late 60s and 70s spawned the Maranatha Praise Movement, which some of you are, are brave enough to admit, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? The Maranatha Praise. I mean, that was uh, kind of cutting-edge contemporary music, and it came out of the Jesus movement where all these hippies were coming to Christ and were, were radical in their commitment, and they wanted to, to sing and praise, and so there was a whole new genre of, of worship and music. And then even today, this modern resurgence of Calvinism, the new Calvinism, if you will, or the Gospel Coalition, or all the church planning organizations like Acts 29 and and uh, Harvest Bible Chapel and, and, um, and, and even um, Sovereign Grace Churches, you know, it's, it's really stimulated uh, this, this new worship movement with um, many reformed gospel-centered songs. And so you always see when there's a revival, a resurgence of some sort in the, the church, it, the music's affected. Music plays a huge role in that. And so singing and, and preaching are powerful partners in the corporate worship of God's people. And that's why the time we allot to singing in our services is really second only to the time that we allot for preaching. And again, typically we think that the singing serves the preaching. But it's also true that the preaching serves the singing. In other words, we all know that singing songs prepares us for hearing sermons, but sermons also prepare people for singing songs. And the deeper we go in the Word together, the higher we should go in worship together. And worship is simply, and the reason that is, is because worship is just simply an overflow of our understanding of what the Bible teaches about who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. And so my duty as the preacher is to teach you about God and his great gospel, and out of that knowledge will flow sincere worship. And so the better the preaching, the better the singing should be. John Stott, in uh, his book, Between Two Worlds, said it this way. He said, the word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. Acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce, which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor, and our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. He said, but when the word of God is expounded in all of its fullness... And the congregation begins to glimpse the glory of the living God. They bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before his throne. And so if solemn awe and joyful wonder does not characterize us when we sing together, 
then there's a huge disconnect somewhere because, listen, we have no lack of biblical exposition at Lakeside Bible Church. So we have all people, I think, are most accountable to worship well. And if you're not feeling the solemn awe or there's no joyful wonder, it may be, it may be that you're not saved yet. You're not truly saved. And some of you know that. And so you just stand there and stare at the screen and don't sing. Because you have nothing to sing about. Um, By the way, don't just assume that if you see somebody not singing, oh, they're not saved. Because sometimes you might look at me and go, whoa, our pastor's not saved. Because he's not singing. Um, Sometimes I'm not singing because I can hear my voice and I think the guy's left my mic on and I don't want to wreck the worship experience (laughs) by you hearing my voice. Like the times when the Gettys came, I don't know if you remember that, what an honor that was to have the Gettys here over in our old worship center and for some reason, a lot of pressure on our sound guys and they forgot to turn my mic off and I realized I was singing a solo with the Gettys (laughs) and it was really awkward and so I, I just stopped singing. No, seriously, sometimes you might look at me and I'm not singing, but hopefully I'm reading the lyrics and I'm meditating on the lyrics. And, and, and sometimes I just, I, it just, I'm worshiping by just reading what it's saying. And it's ministering to me without even me opening my mouth. And sometimes I'm just blessed to listen to you sing the praise of God. Or it may be that you catch me at a moment where I saw something on that screen that I wasn't about to sing because it wasn't true of my life at that point. Have you ever done that? You're looking at the lyrics and going, whoa, um, all to you I surrender. Hmm. But I got this little sin on the side that I'm not willing to give up. Can I really say that and not be a hypocrite? And we've got to take these lines. I mean, we're, we're saying these things to the Lord. In, in, in many ways, we're making vows to the Lord as we're s- singing these songs. If you're, not, if you're not doing it just mindlessly, right, but you're actually engaged and you're like, hey, I, I can't honestly say that to the Lord right now. So I'm just not going to sing that. And, and so the point is, though, but if there's a lack of awe, there's a lack of joyful wonder, it may be that you're not truly saved, or it may be that you've gotten over your salvation, Maybe you lost that sense of wonder about the gospel and the, the good news of salvation no longer makes your heart glad. Have you ever asked yourself why, why we sing? Why do we sing so much around here? Or maybe more importantly, have you, have you, have you ever analyzed how you sing? I think the answer to the first question, why we sing so much, is because God saved us and put a song in our hearts. We've been saved to sing. And how we sing is an indication of how grateful we are that God saved us and how how great we think the gospel is. I mean, if someone observed you this morning while we were singing... And I don't want to get, make this weird, like, we start all looking at each other, and everybody's looking at me, and we forget that we're ultimately in the presence of God, right? And we're here for Him, and He's the audience, and we are 
the performers, if you will, hopefully not performing, but we are the ones on stage that are loving and, and honoring Christ. But if someone were to observe your singing this morning, would they get the sense of the greatness of the gospel by your gladness for it? You're like, that guy doesn't look really that happy. He doesn't look really that excited about what we're singing. Well, maybe if he's not glad about it, if there's no gladness, then maybe, maybe you don't see the greatness of the gospel. And if we're not that glad about the good news of salvation, then why would any, everybody think it's that great? Why do I need this? People are just kind of here, and I'd rather be out fishing or playing golf. I, I don't need this. There's nothing great about what I'm experiencing here. I know some of you might think, well, hey, that's not fair because I'm not very expressive. I'm not a very emotional person. I'm one of the frozen chosen. <laughs> that may be true. I mean, my wife and I in many ways are on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to uh, emotion, right? That might be true of a lot of husbands and wives, but, but um, Kelly's a musician, and uh, part of that package is there's a lot of emotion packed into her being. And I'm more of a robot. You know, I just kind of do what I got to do and you know, go to the next thing. And sometimes there's not a whole lot of emotion there. And it makes for some interesting conversations, you know, between us. Uh, her dealing with my lack of emotion and, and me dealing with her overdose of emotions. <laughs> and, uh, but hey... That's just, we're all different, right? But let me just ask you a fair question. How do you respond, again, when your favorite baseball player hits a walk-off homer or your favorite football team scores the winning touchdown or your favorite basketball team wins in the last seconds of, of double overtime? I mean, how do you express your gladness? Do you kind of sit there and go, well, that's cool. That was pretty neat. And that's not how we express our gladness, typically. People who are normally quiet and mild-mannered, they scream and yell at the top of their lungs and jump up and down and wave their hands. I remember going to a sporting event with a guy in our church who's extremely laid-back, chill, mild-mannered, doesn't talk unless you talk to him, and he was sitting behind me at this deal and, and something happened out there and some dude behind me screamed and yelled and went crazy and I turned around and I was like, whoa, dude, who are you? Well, wh- where did you come from? I mean, it was just totally different persona. It was hilarious. But then we come to church, right? And we can barely hear one another sing, we, we stand there motionlessly, kind of mumbling the words without any emotion. I mean, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, are we really more excited about sports or other things than we are about our salvation? And so when we gather for corporate worship, we're coming into the presence of God and we need to rise to the occasion. Again, it doesn't mean we have to raise our hands or jump up and down, but, but we should at least lift the rafters with our voices. Wouldn't you agree? 
And anybody who shows up here is going, whoa, these people are going hard after the Lord. Just, just by the way, they're just singing out. These people are excited about something or someone. And so we gather to celebrate who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. It, it should be a glad, joyful celebration. And according to God's word, that's how it's always been with God's people and how it will always be. And if you just do a quick survey of the scriptures, it, it, it shows us over and over and over again why we should sing and how we should sing. And I mean, you begin in the Old Testament and you look at the nation of Israel. And, and you, if you know anything about Hebrew worship, I mean, those people know how to get it on, right? I mean, they, 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 are, they, they are excited when they sing. It's loud and, and, and it's, it's instrumental. And, 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 and yet the nation of Israel, they, they sang in response to being saved, rescued, delivered by God from all sorts of nations and situations. And I mean, everyone's singing in the Old Testament. Moses was singing, Miriam was singing, Deborah was singing, Barak was singing, David was singing, the Levites, an entire section or tribe was assigned that you guys are the singers. In fact, the Levites led, how cool is this? I heard John Piper preach a message on this one time, how when Israel would go to war, they would put the singers out front. Like, hey, I'm not sure that's a good idea if I'm a singer. Why are you putting me out front? I'll, cut, I'll, I'll sing from the back there. Let you guys with the guns and the, the armor go out in front of me, right? But no, they sent the worshipers out front because for the nation of Israel, war was an act of worship. But they were destroying the, the pagan nations. And so they were led into battle with worship, with singing. But everybody was writing songs back then. You have Moses' song and Miriam's song and the song of Deborah and the song of David and you know, all these songs were being written all the time. And of course, the psalmist, the psalms are, was really the, the hymnal, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And uh, Psalm 96, just for example here, and we could read a Tons and tons of psalms that sound exactly the same. Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We're invited. We're challenged. We're commanded over and over and over again in the Old Testament to sing praise to the Lord. And then you get to the New Testament and you see that Jesus sang with his disciples after they were in the upper room together. It says they sang a hymn and then left. And so the Lord, our, own, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, sang when he was here on earth with his disciples. Paul and Silas sang in the Philippian jail. What a place to have a, you know, they get arrested for preaching and they get thrown in jail and the worship service breaks out. 
1 Corinthians 14, 15 says that we're to sing with the spirit and the mind. Again, a good uh, reference, very similar to John 4, that, that God is seeking worshipers, those who worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. And so we're to sing with the spirit and the mind. In other words, we should be thinking of biblical truth while we're singing and there should be some emotion involved. James told us to sing praises if we're cheerful. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing. We've already seen that, according to the book of Revelation, that heaven is filled with singing. If you don't like to sing, you're not going to like heaven. Okay, just letting you know. So you better get used to it, and you better get as good at it as you can. But by the way, when you get to heaven, you're going to have a perfect voice. Yeah, so you're going to be singing like, you know, the Celine Dion's of the world and, you know, you ladies will be, and, and guys, I don't know who we'll be like, but some of you are like, yes, I'll finally sing like Elvis. No, I'm just kidding. But the point is, we'll, we'll be singing. Listen, get used to it. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven. Now, just with the time we have left, look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me. Ephesians chapter 5. And Colossians chapter 3, and Paul says basically the same thing in these two letters, one to the church in Ephesus, the other to the church in Colossae, and again, he's equipping these letters. Why why did Paul write these epistles? He was equipping these churches to be all that God wanted them to be, and he mentions singing and hymns and spiritual songs Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, the context is, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So what does a Spirit-filled life look like? How do you know if you're controlled by the Spirit, yielded to the Spirit? Well, you'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then look at Colossians 3.16. He says basically the same thing. Colossians 3.16, he says to the believers in, in Colossae, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it's interesting, he's really combining, if you take Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and Colossians 3.16, you have a word-filled, spirit-filled Christian, Right? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Don't be drunk wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So a spirit-filled Christian, what do they do? They speak to one another in Psalms and spiritual songs. And then what about a word-filled Christian? If the word of Christ richly dwell within you, they do the same thing. So what does it mean to be controlled by the Holy Spirit? Seems kind of a nebulous thing. That's kind of It's kind of a mysterious. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It simply means to be controlled by the Word of God. To live a life that's controlled by the Word of God. That's just, it, they're synonymous things. They, he, he uses the, 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 the uh, two different terms, being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word of Christ, but they have the same exact results. So what does that tell us? They're one and the same. 
And so take the being filled with the Spirit out of the, the realm of the nebulous and make it real practical. It just means, means being controlled by the Word of God, which is the sword of the who? Spirit. But notice he says here in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, the teachings of Christ that are recorded in the scriptures, the word of God, richly dwell within you, literally to take up residence in you, to make uh, its home in you. In other words, you're to let God's word have the run of your life, that God's word should permeate every nook and cranny of our lives and when our hearts and minds are soaked and saturated and marinated in the word of God through reading it and hearing it and memorizing it and meditating on it and obeying it, then it becomes deeply implanted in our hearts and it, and it affects the flavor of our lives and it controls how we think and how we respond and what we say and what we don't say and what we do and what we don't do. And so when our lives are so permeated with the word of God, what Paul says, it will naturally overflow in teaching and admonishing and singing. He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Listen, in every healthy church where the priority attention is given to the word of God, there will always be positive instruction that's the teaching and admonishing, the, the negative correction, if you will, along with passionate worship. And so all of us have a responsibility to teach others what God has taught us from His Word and provide wise, godly counsel to those who need it. And how do we do that practically? Well, we do it by teaching. Some of you have opportunities, you have the gift of teaching and you teach the word of God to others. Some of you counsel others. But guess what? You say, well, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a counselor. Well, can you sing? Because look at it. Singing is included in this list of things. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And both Ephesians 5 verse 19 and Colossians 3.16 bring out an interesting concept when it comes to singing that I don't know about you, but I personally have not thought a lot about until recently. That our singing has a dual focus. First and foremost, obviously we are praising God. We are making melody in our hearts to God. We are singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And so when we sing, we're, we're, we're singing to God. We're worshiping God. We're saying things to God. He works. Music is a way to express our heart to God and what we're feeling, what we're thinking to God. But at the same time, we're teaching and admonishing one another. I remember that stood out to me when we interviewed Chris um, our music minister, that he emphasized this in his, in his uh, philosophy of music ministry, that, that really what we're doing together, we're singing to each other. We're singing to God, obviously, but we're also singing to each other. You're like, okay, that's kind of weird. But that's straight from the scriptures. That songs are sermons in disguise that we're preaching to ourselves and to those around us.
that might freak someone out, but, you know, there's songs that are obviously directed towards God. There's others that are just a great reminder of God's truth. It's not so much directed at God as it is to yourself. Like, I need to remember this truth that I'm preaching and I'm internalizing the gospel. Try this sometime and just kind of turn to your spouse or your brother, your sister, or the person sitting next to you and start singing it to them. Instead of looking at the screen, just kind of sing it to them. They were like, dude, you're weird. I'm not sitting next to you anymore. But that's the point is that what are we doing? We're reminding ourselves and each other of biblical truth. That truth that we need to rely on, that we need to rest in so that we live well, we die well. I'll never forget an experience several years ago where I was standing in the back ready to, waiting to go up to preach and during the last song, I just happened to be gazing across the, the, the congregation and I noticed my eyes met a, a young mom sitting in the back who was obviously engaged in worshiping the Lord and the song was, uh, I remember it was a song about trusting God, that I can trust in you in the midst of the trials and the pain and the suffering of life. And I mean, she was just going for it in worshiping the Lord. And what meant so much to me about it is I knew that she just had a, had a miscarriage. And she was experiencing, she was living through that pain right there. And yet she was, she was clinging to God through that song, and she was just weeping and worshiping, and it was such a beautiful, I think that is so powerful. That's why we sing. Because I might get up and I might preach a mes- message that really doesn't necessarily hit her heart or target where she's at, but that song is doing it for her today. <laughs> she's being ministered to by the word, through the lyrics of that song. Let me just read for you from this little book I told you I've been reading, How to Walk into Church. Kind of funny little book title, right? How, how to Walk into Church. But, but listen to what he says, uh, Tony Payne here. He's just affirming what we've been talking about. He says, when we sing, he's got a little section here, when we sing. When we sing, our hearts are often stirred and lifted up to God. As Paul puts it, we make melody to the Lord in our hearts. We can thank him in song and pray to him in song and express so many different ways our delight and joy and amazement and gratitude and love to our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we sing, we also teach and exhort one another and declare to one another the great deeds and words of the Lord. Singing is an act of edification and mutual encouragement as much as an act of Godward thanksgiving and joy. In fact, when we look at what praise is in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, we find that it, is almost, that it almost always has this dual focus or audience. It is directed to God in thankfulness and joy for all that he is and all that he's done, but it is also directed to those who are listening, that they too might recognize the greatness of God and rejoice and give thanks to him. Praise, he says, is like advertising it begs for an audience. This means that no matter what the song, it's always more encouraging and helpful if you sing it with gusto as opposed to mumbling out the words with a bored or peevish irritable look on your face, which encourages no one. It does not matter whether you like this particular song or whether the musicians are any good or even whether you are good at singing. 
You belt out the song with enthusiasm because as you do, you're really giving voice to your faith in God and hope in God and love for God, but you're also testifying to those around you. You're being an example and an encouragement to the rest of the congregation. How cool is that? What a great perspective to have about singing. And I'm so grateful he makes the point that it really doesn't matter how good of a singer you are, uh, how good the music might be, whether they're playing your favorite song or not, that ultimately, as we're told in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, that, that, that worship has everything to do with our hearts. You can honor God with your lips, but your heart can be far away from him, right? Jesus confronted the Pharisees, said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Your mouths are moving, but your heart isn't here. Your heart's not in it. And so what did Jesus say? The things that proceed out of the mouth come from where? The heart. And so whatever's in our hearts will come out of our mouths. And so how we sing is a reflection of what's in our hearts. And so if our singing is lame, it's evidence that we either don't have a song in our heart, we're not saved, Or maybe we lack the joy of our salvation and the prayer we need to pray is, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because when a person's heart is grateful for all that God has done for them in Christ and they're genuinely glad about the gospel, man, they're going to sing passionately and loudly and joyfully. And so we need to be engaging with both our head and our heart when we sing. So why do you come to church? Why do we come to church? We come to church to sing. And um, like I said, if you don't like it, like, hey, can we just get on with the singing and get to the preaching? That's why I come here. Well, you're missing a huge part uh, of what we're all about as a church. And by the way, I don't know that there's going to be much, if any, preaching in heaven. Uh, What I gather is there's a whole lot more singing going on. And the preaching's done. Preaching's over. It served its purpose. But singing is eternal. We'll be doing it for all eternity. It will never go out of season. It will always be something that we do. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder of something that we do, almost second nature. It would be so easy to do this mindlessly because we do it all the time. Um, We could uh, very easily just go through the motions on Sunday and we've sung some of these songs over and over again and we know them by heart and it'd be easy just to mouth the words and not really mean what we're saying or thinking about what we're saying and Lord, and I know I haven't thought enough about how my singing not just praises you and blesses you, but it also blesses others and ministers to others and encourages and challenges others. And so I pray you'd help us learn all to participate in the singing, in the music, even if we don't feel like we're gifted or we have a good voice, that we would find our place before your throne singing your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.